So what we want to do today is we want to jump right back into where we were last week without going back into last week's lesson because you don't have the outline with you because we completed it. I was talking last week about why I personally believe that believers cannot be possessed. Now that's not some kind of dogmatic truth that I can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. There is disagreement among equally committed Christians as to that subject and as to whether or not Christians can actually be possessed. I do believe Christians can be oppressed, and we'll talk about that this morning. I just believe that with the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and that we've been delivered from the power of Satan, I just find it a biblical contradiction to say that Christians can be possessed. Now, having said that, There are people who give testimony to the fact that they believe they've encountered true born-again Christians who were possessed. Much of it comes from mission field stories where they're ministering to people steeped in long-time idolatry and witchcraft and voodoo and all that kind of stuff. So I'm definitely not going to just be horribly dogmatic. I personally believe that a Christian cannot be possessed. At the same time... As we begin this lesson today, we are going to see that Christians can be oppressed. And sometimes there's not much difference in what we see acting out in their lives. So we'll deal with that as we move along. So what about demonic possession? Well, this is a subject not talked about typically in Baptist circles. Oddly enough, we just don't deal with this much. I don't know whether it seems a little too hocus-pocusy or just a little bit too spiritual. I don't exactly know what it is, but it is a subject not dealt with typically. So there's lots of questions, and and that's one of the reasons why we're covering this extra material, trying to answer some of the questions that you may have or that others may have asked you uh, without being horribly dogmatic in the process. Merrill Unger, uh, a graduate of Dallas Theological, years ago, wrote a number of of works on this very subject. And in his book, Demons in the World Today, notice he says, demon possession is a condition in which one or more evil spirits or demons, if you want to call them that, inhabit the body of a human being and can take complete control of their victim at will. I think that's probably a pretty good working definition of what demonic possession is. Now, if you compare that to what Paul said to Christians, don't be drunk with wine. Remember, because wine then takes over uh, your personality and you might say or do things that you normally wouldn't say or do. He said, rather be filled with the Spirit so that you're under control of God's Spirit. Well, here, someone who is demonically possessed is the opposite. They're under the control of the Spirit, all right, but it's not the Holy Spirit. So then... What about demonic possession? Is that something that's just reserved for the Old uh, Testament and maybe the uh, New Testament period, the first century or two? Is that something that we need to be talking about today? Well, when you look through not only Scripture but history, you find that in what we would call the New Testament era, the Old Testament's pretty obvious about demonic possession. Uh, In the days of Jesus, you have demonic possession. There's a question about it. We've looked at many, many passages of Scripture throughout this series uh, justifying that very statement. 
We also see demonic activity in the ministries of the apostles and the early church. It's unquestionable, and we'll see some of those today. We see it in the annals of church history. As the histories have been written from century to century, we see demonic activity and demonic possession. And, and I believe we continue to see it today. Now, we have learned how to mask certain things under different kinds of psychosis. And we'll, we'll claim that somebody has this uh, you know, psychotic episode or they have this psychological disorder. And some of it is that. We want to be very, very careful that we don't write off everything to a demon. In fact, that's the other extreme. One of the extremes is you just don't hardly talk about it at all, which is kind of the, where the Baptist church has kind of been over the years. The other extreme is to just kind of point everything, point at everything that goes wrong and say that's demonic. That's the devil. The devil did that. The demon did this. And every time somebody is sick or someone has some type of psychological disorder, well, it's demonic. And that is simply not true. Even in the New Testament, in the gospel accounts, you'll find the writers uh, differentiating between illnesses that were just physical or psychological and those that were caused by demons. There's even a designation there. So we want to be very, very careful. The Word of Faith movement has really gone off to seed on this. And they even say to the point that if you have an illness, that's because there's sin in your life. And if you didn't have that sin in your life, you wouldn't be sick. And therefore, all Christians can be completely healthy and never sick. Well, that's just not taught in Scripture. And and then, you know, they get into the same thing with, with uh, demonism and, and demonic activity. So I, I just... We have to be very, very careful that we don't go beyond uh, what the Scripture teaches. Now, I think it's important to review a few passages here very quickly, just to kind of get in the flow again. Matthew 15, 22, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. I mean, the Bible's pretty clear about this. Mark 1, 23, just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out, which is, of course, a demon. Mark 9, 17, and one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. Uh, now, a lot of times we'd write that off as some kind of physical or mental abnormality. In this particular instance, it was demonic. Acts 8, 7, for in the case of many who had unclean spirits, now this is in the early church, They were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. So these demons were yelling and screaming as they were coming out of these people. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. Uh, Acts 16, 16, it happened uh, that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, the apostle says. Matthew 12, 22, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Uh, Matthew twelve twenty seven and 28, Jesus was accused of casting out demons by the power of the devil. And Jesus didn't say, well, there's no such thing as demon possession, and I'm not casting out demons. <laughs> he didn't say that at all. He says, if I by Beelzebub or the devil cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus clearly is admitting that he's literally casting demons out of people. So uh, there's no question about it. And then we're all familiar with the passage in Matthew 12 where Jesus goes on to talk about a man that had a demon uh, who had possessed him. 
Uh, for some reason, the demon is run out, but the man is not redeemed. And so that demon goes out and gets seven other demons worse than himself and goes back and they repossess the man. And Jesus said the last state of that man becomes worse than it was in the first one. And had one demon. So, you know, the Bible is pretty clear about uh, demon possession and demonic activity. And there's nothing in Scripture that even hints at the fact that this is not happening today. In fact, you look around you, it seems pretty obvious that this is happening a great deal. It's just like the shooting the other day where the 19-year-old went into the FedEx facility and killed, what, eight people and then shot himself? I believe that most of those are demonic. Now, it could be psychological, but I think it's probably psychological motivated by demonic power. Remember, Jesus said that the thief, referring to the devil, came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what he's all about. So, um, I think it's obvious that demonic activity is going on in the world. So then the question is, is there a difference in demonic possession and demonic oppression? And I believe this is the mark of delineation between what happens to unbelievers and what happens to believers who are demonized. Now, sometimes it's possible that it, uh, you almost can't tell the difference. And I, I do believe that demonically oppressed Christians ought to be a rarity. Unfortunately, with the more and more watered-down preaching and teaching that is coming out of pulpits today, Christians are far more vulnerable because although they could on their own study Scripture, we know that everything rises and falls on leadership, and God gave the church pastors, teachers, preachers, evangelists, so that the church could be matured. And if those guys aren't doing their jobs then the church struggles. So here's another quote from uh, Unger in his Demons in the World Today. Uh, he says, demon influence. Now, so the reason why I left that blank is because he's not talking here about possession. He's talking about what I would call oppression. Demon influence. Even uh, in its most, and I should say in, not it, in its most severe forms, does not manifest the same abject domination by evil spirits that so saliently characterizes actual possession. There is no blacking out of consciousness, no demonized state, no usurpation of the body as a mere tool of the inhabiting demon, no speaking with another voice and the projection of another personality through the victim. Now, of course, this is Unger's opinion based upon years of study, but I think it's probably a good place to start. So if a Christian uh, becomes oppressed or influenced, I don't believe that they're going to be acting like someone who's actually possessed, although they are definitely demonized. So how in the world then would that happen in the life of a Christian? Well, we need to use some scripture to establish kind of a foundation on the whole concept. First of all, the Bible is clear that Satan is seeking to get an advantage over believers. Not unbelievers. He actually owns them. And he'll possess them at will. But he's trying to get an advantage. And I don't know why in the world that verse popped up first. So somehow they flipped. Um, but he's trying to seek an advantage over us. In fact, remember Peter was told by Jesus that Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. 
And then Jesus says, I didn't tell him he couldn't. He doesn't say that. He says, I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. Meaning that Jesus was going to allow Satan to sift Peter like wheat. And if you know the story, of course you do. He does just that. Now, what is the devil doing there? He's going after a believer. Albeit, uh, he's in that intertestamental period where the Holy Spirit has not come yet. But still, uh, this is a believer. But then Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11... So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now, Paul says, I'm on the watch, and I'm doing what I need to do so that he won't be able to get advantage of us. But what about those Christians that are not? What about Christians that are about an inch deep and a mile wide, and their Christianity is pretty much summed up by going to church when it's convenient? Now, let's just say that they're really saved but nominally saved. And I know that's a whole other issue that's a difficult one, uh, to say the least. But Paul clearly does say that there is such a thing as a carnal Christian. In 1 Corinthians, Paul makes that abundantly clear over and over and over. And yet he doesn't tell those people they aren't saved, but he definitely condemns them for their their carnality. Okay, so uh, here if the devil is looking for an opportunity through his demonic hordes, to take an advantage of some believer, and that believer is vulnerable and walking blind, then you can just imagine what goes on. Now, probably not to the point of actual possession, but I'm telling you, some of the meanest people you will deal with in your whole life are church people. Church people. I mean, it was church people that Jesus focused on when he would say, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, and then pull back the veil. Now, in that particular instance, those people probably weren't true believers. But the point is, it is so easy to get religious without being redeemed. Therefore, you're really not even saved. So the devil can pretty much come at you at will. But now you can do it under the guise of being a saved church member and and, and wreak all kinds of havoc in the church, which is exactly what happens. I do believe that we have to be careful when we're talking about this because I think some people that act demonically oppressed are not oppressed Christians. They're possessed church members. They're not saved. There is a big difference between someone who is a new creation in Christ and someone who's still an old creation in church. Catch the difference. A new creation in Christ, an old creation in church. And so there are a lot of people that we see do things, and over the years we've said, well, I just can't understand how a Christian could do that. But probably not a Christian. Now, there's an entire study that I've mentioned numerous times. It's the book of 1 John that offers what I call faith tests. Over and over and over as you move through the book of 1 John, John gives certain tests that you can apply to yourself or to others to determine whether or not they're really saved. Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 13 that every believer ought to test themselves. Now, I don't think you ought to do that on a weekly basis or a monthly basis. If you're sincere about the examination that you take of yourself. If you determine that you're really saved, that's really the last examination you're going to ever need. 
But unfortunately, there are many people who are so haphazard in their spiritual life that they're probably not saved, but they think they are because they grew up in a Christian home or maybe they are members of a church or they've been baptized or sometime when they were a kid, they went forward in some youth camp or some VBS. And that's not to say that kids can't truly be saved at those. They can But I've encountered over the years many, 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 many believers who made some kind of a decision when they were a kid, but when they became an adult, they realized that they didn't have the slightest idea what they were doing back then when they were a kid. Now, I came to Christ when I was eight. I knew exactly what I was doing. I felt called to preach at the age of 10. I preached my first summer at the age of 16. That doesn't make me better than anybody else. I just, God got a hold of me early on. And I was able to respond early on. But there are some who make these decisions. There are even adults that go forward in a revival or a crusade. And then they're just kind of a flash in the pan. But from that point on, people struggle, kind of scratch their heads saying, well, I don't really know. I mean, I I was there the night that old so-and-so was saved. Well, maybe they weren't saved. And maybe that's not a demonically oppressed Christian. That's a demon-possessed unbeliever. We, we have, to, we have to, uh, to consider that. We also know that the Bible says, Paul writing himself, he says that Satan was able to hinder him. Now, this is not that Paul was demonically oppressed or possessed. But to show you the power of the powers of darkness, Paul says uh, that... Uh, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that were given to me to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, of course, God was in that. But notice the devil was still able to mess with him. Now, God used it. God allowed it. Romans 8.28 applies here. It wasn't because of some sin in Paul's life. But the fact remains that the devil was able. It's a messenger of Satan, a demon. That's why I'm not quite so sure that Paul there is referring to his eyesight. Maybe it was. I don't know because he struggled with his eyesight. But this appears to be something even worse. And Paul struggles with this. It keeps him on his knees all the time regardless of what it was. And then here in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 18, he says, We wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once. Well, why hadn't he? He said, because Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Now, this is kind of a far cry from the Joel Osteen message. I mean, think about it for a moment. Or even the Kenneth Copeland or the Creflo Dollar or you just name who it is. All of these blab it, grab it, you know, victory, everything's victory. Christians are always going to overcome. Well, then why is it that Paul was hindered by Satan? I don't hardly believe Paul didn't understand how to live in victory. There's actually been some faith teachers who have said, well, that's because Paul had sin in his life. He didn't understand uh, victory faith. If he had, he'd have overcome the devil in those instances. Well, that's pretty bodacious to say something like that about a guy who's most likely the 12th apostle handpicked by Jesus who writes over half of the New Testament, who receives revelations from God that were so 
wonderful and so amazing that he was not allowed to write them down. Who in one particular instance for certain he said, I was caught away into the spirit world. Whether I was in my body or out of the body, I don't know. I was in a third heaven. Come on now. This is not some guy that doesn't get it. And yet he says, there were multiple times, more than once, that I wanted to come to Thessalonica and the devil kept us from it. Don't sell the powers of darkness short. Now, I'm not preaching here or teaching that we're just at the whims of the devil and that we don't have victory in Christ because we do. But that doesn't mean that we're not in a warfare here and it doesn't mean that the powers of darkness won't come against us. So it's obvious here that the devil and the demons are after believers. And then demons can certainly oppress wayward believers. Uh, the scriptures are, are, are you know, pretty, pretty clear on that. Here's a wayward believer at Corinth that Paul said, that church should deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's a guy who was living in open rebellion to God, terrible sin in his life. Now, notice he does say that if, devil, if the devil killed him, his spirit would be saved. This is punitive here. This is church discipline on steroids. I mean, it's one thing to practice church discipline. It's another thing to turn a wayward believer over to the devil that he'll die prematurely. Now, I think that's what John was talking about when he refers to something he calls the sin unto death. And he said, don't pray for someone who's committed that sin because they can't be forgiven. They're going to die prematurely. Doesn't mean they're going to hell, but they're going to die prematurely. So this, this is a way in which demons can go after wayward believers. And then another passage similar, Paul's talking about Hymenaeus and Alexander and he said, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now, we can argue as to whether or not Hymenaeus and Alexander were true Christians. Maybe they were in the process and weren't quite there yet. I don't know. But there's no questioning that Paul here tells Timothy that he had turned these two men over to the devil. He'll work them over. So that they'll learn. The whole point is punitive. So that they'll learn not to blaspheme. So the Bible seems to be pretty clear that given certain circumstances, demons can have tremendous sway in our lives. Kind of scary, but sobering at the same time, isn't it? See, this thing is not a game. The average American Christian, first world Christian, this is just a deal we do. We go to church. We're not, we're not the church. We go to church. We argue over stuff that doesn't even matter. Most churches split over nonsense. They don't split or fight over stuff that really matters. Oh, it matters to them at the time. But do you honestly believe in the overall advancement of the kingdom and in eternity the type of carpet or the shape of the building or the schedule of services is going to matter. And yet that's what church people fight over and split over. Turfism, all that kind of stuff. It's just utterly ridiculous. So uh, what these do to me is they cause me to remember that the church is not just an enterprise. You know, Bill Hybels back in the 90s, and I'm not trying to condemn everything that he did, but Bill Hybels was one of the leadership movement leaders. 
And it was all about marketing the gospel and marketing the church and leveraging. They'd even use the word leverage the gospel. Well, you know, if you're using that in the proper sense, I get it. Paul was trying to plant churches all over uh, the, the New Testament world and into Europe. And I guarantee you, he's leveraging the gospel. But he didn't have a corporate CEO mindset. He wasn't saying, well, let's just figure out how we can make the gospel more acceptable to people. Let's take away some of the barbs so people will be more inclined to listen to the gospel or to come to our Christ. See, this is not an enterprise. This is not a business. Now, I will tell you, the gospel and the church is the most important business on the planet, but it's not a business. In the end... This is the kingdom of God. And God isn't playing around even though many so-called believers are. God isn't. And I think one day at the judgment seat of Christ where all Christians are going to be judged, there are many Christians who are going to be quite surprised of the nonsense that they were doing that they thought was so important and God's going to tell them that's wood, hay, and stubble and it's going to go up in smoke. They're going to be embarrassed as a Christian standing before the Lord. We just, we've, we've so messed up what we emphasize and, and, and our priorities. Uh, uh, believers, though, I, I'm convinced, are only vulnerable uh, if they allow it. I don't believe that demons or Satan can overpower a believer. Now, he can hinder us. He can come against us. But in the end, we can do all things through Christ who is our strength. I'm more than a conqueror through Christ. You just persevere. It's what Paul did, persevered. And finally, at the end of his life, he said, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. And therefore, the reward is for me. Now, remember, the reward is not eternal life. That's a gift. Paul wasn't saying, I've earned eternal life for myself. No, he had received that as a gift. That was purchased by Jesus on the cross. He's talking about rewards for faithful service as a born-again Christian. It's a different thing. That's what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. So notice here in Ephesians 4.27, a verse that we're all probably familiar with, where Paul says, do not give the devil an opportunity. The older King James says, do not give place to the devil. Now he says that right after he's talking about handling your anger. Don't allow the sun to set on your wrath. In other words, keep short accounts. Deal with stuff. It's not just your anger, but anger is a great illustration. Don't allow stuff to fester and to continue. And yet most churches have swept so many things under the rug that the rug is so high in its hump area that the edges don't even touch the floors anymore. We don't, we don't keep short accounts. We argue with each Now, we're all human, and we're going to offend each other, and we're going to step on each other. And many times we didn't mean to, but we're going to. We have a bad attitude, maybe, or maybe we're in a hurry, so we're short. Or maybe we just get the wrong attitude about somebody or something. We don't have all the information, and we say or do things we shouldn't. But we need to keep short accounts. Notice, he says, when we don't, We're giving the devil an opportunity. Now, do you think if the devil gets an opportunity to come into your life and mess it up, he's going to pass? You think he's going to say, "Ah, I'm too busy? No. And I do believe that there are many Christians, especially in this era. I would assume it's always been this way, but certainly it's this way now. Who have so compromised themselves that the devil 
has lots of opportunities, and he exploits every one of them. I think this is why the church is so impotent. The church is so ineffective in our world today. In fact, the world, the left, pretty much laughs at the church. They laugh at us. We're no real threat to them. Every now and then we are, but they laugh. I mean, we even had leaders in the so-called evangelical church that were saying because Donald Trump uh, had a problem with arrogance, you couldn't vote for him, and it was basically the same as not being able to vote for a Marxist in Biden. What do you mean? I mean, I agree arrogance is an issue, but I can tell you I'd rather have an arrogant person who loves liberty as a very humble Marxist who's trying to take it away. So... Uh, and we had church leaders leading Christians to, to make that kind of silliness. And then here's a passage of Scripture that a lot of folks have struggled over. Uh, I have my opinion on it. I'm going to give it. Uh, you may or may not agree. But you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira early in the days of the church in Acts chapter 5? And it's not that they didn't give all the money from the proceeds of a land sale. It's that they were trying to make people believe that they were giving. You didn't have to give all the money. That's not why they were in trouble. They were in trouble because they were trying to pass themselves off as something they weren't. Now that shows you how serious God is about hypocrisy. Because that's what a hypocrite is. You remember it comes from the old Greek era when they would have plays and the actors would wear these masks that we're all familiar with that are kind of white and eyes are cut out, you know, and it has a smile or the frown. And these actors were called hypocrites, which means a mask wearer. It's just over time that the the term hypocrite came to be used for people who are one thing here and one thing there and another thing over here. Hypocrites. Mask wearers. I think that's what Ananias and Sapphira were. But I'm not so sure that they weren't Christians. You say, well, Dan, I... I, I," Well, Peter certainly doesn't say that they aren't. They commit the sin unto death. They drop dead in the church. Remember, they, they both tell the same concocted lie and they both die in the church. What was the net effect to the church? Well, when you read in Acts 5, we don't have time today to do it, but when you read about the net effect, it caused everybody to be filled with fear and trembling because they realize God's not playing here. We're not playing church. It's really church. Now, notice... Uh, Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Notice Satan has filled your heart. I think what you have there, and of course we'll never know till eternity whether Ananias and Sapphira were truly saved. I think what you've got there is new Christians who are dinking around with trying to look more spiritual than they are and they lie about how much money they're giving. We're giving it all. Well, truth is they weren't. They didn't have to, but they shouldn't have lied about it. And Peter says, well, you've allowed Satan to fill your heart with this. You've lied to the Holy Spirit, and you're going to drop dead. And they do. They do. I've often said that if God still worked exactly the same way in the modern New Testament church, we'd have much smaller congregations, I fear. But I'm telling you, I do believe that over the years, though I'm not the ultimate judge of it, and I would never go around saying this publicly, I think I've seen a few people die prematurely that I think had committed the sin unto death. Boy, I tell you, it'll fill you with fear if you see that and you think that's what it was. It's a scary, scary thing. So, I do believe that demons can 
influence people who are believers and can, can wreak havoc in their lives. Look at, look at most of our Christian families. What a mess they're in. There's a lot of reasons for that, I'll admit. But I think part of it is parents who have given the devil an opportunity and he has gladly taken it. And he is destroying the next generations, uh, plural. Many, many reasons why, but this, this is scary stuff. So that's kind of my, uh, my, my uh, place on where, where Christians are with demonic possession. Now, let's begin to talk about full bore demonic possession. What happens in the life of an unbeliever? Well, I think the first thing that we ought to do is we ought to begin to discuss what the, the characteristics of demon possession are. What, what, what does it look like? Well, there are a lot of ways in which we can do this. One, we can look to those who've studied it over the years, over the centuries. Let's go back to Unger again. In his book, Demons in the World Today, he says on page 102, the chief characteristic of demon possession, not oppression, possession, is the automatic projection of a new personality in the victim. Now, before I go any further, I do know that there is actually an illness called schizophrenia. A person can be a manic depressive and almost have two personalities. A person can have schizophrenia and have multiple and all, have multiple personality disorder. And I'm not saying that all of that is demonic, but I suggest to you a lot of it is. Because generally what you'll find in many of those people, not all, and that's why I'm trying to be very careful, you'll generally find flirting with other stuff that's vile and evil. Normally mixed with uh, a lot of alcohol use and drug abuse. And those are just open doors for demonic activity to people's lives. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we, uh, as we move along. It's one of the reasons why I've always been a teetotaler. Of course, I've never been tempted to drink. I don't need it. Tea and Coca-Cola and Dr. Pepper and all that's fine for me. Uh, I've never known of anybody who was involved in a car wreck and killed four or five people because they had too much tea to drink and they were driving under the influence of tea. I just, you know, I don't see that. But I've done a lot of funerals of people killed by drunk drivers. A lot of them. Christians don't need that. And here's the deal. Even if an adult Christian thinks they can handle their liquor, a young person watching can't. And I've been, I've been amazed over the years at parents who have a very lax position on alcohol in their homes are shocked when their 16-year-olds raid the liquor cabinet and go out driving drunk and get in a wreck or, you know, find themselves uh, expecting a child when they're not married and all that. Alcohol was a big contributing factor. And they go, I can't believe it. What do you mean you can't believe it? You're setting these young people up for this. That's like taking an alcoholic and hiring them to drive a beer truck. That is stupid. Why do we need things like it? But, it, but it's, it's an open door to demonic activity. So let, let's see what the characteristics are by looking, first of all, at a biblical example, and then we'll move on to other Christian theologians and counselors, and we'll add some of the characteristics that they've observed over the years. But let's start with a good foundation scripturally. Now, this will be as far as we're going to get today. So, so let, let, we're not going to read the whole passage of Mark 5, 1 through 19. But just to refresh your memory, this is where the Gadarene man uh, is encountered by Jesus 
who has these demons in him and they put him in the, 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 he lives in the cemetery and he wails and screams and they've tried to chain him up, rope him up. He breaks loose all the time and, and that's, you remember the story. So let, let's look at characteristics that we, we see in that particular instance. So for instance, in verse 3 of Mark 5, we find that he had his dwelling among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with the chain. So what is that? Well, that's unusual physical strength. People who are demonically possessed will have superhuman strength sometimes as a characteristic. Now, all of these characteristics may not show at any given time, but this is one of the characteristics. He could not be held with a chain. Wow. The, the demons would energize him and apparently strengthen his limbs enough that he could break chains because typically you break a chain or a shackle on your wrist, you'll break your wrist. So they would empower his body spiritually so he's able to break those without apparently doing a lot of permanent damage uh, to his skeletal structure. Uh, Perioxims or fits of rage are also uh, indicative of demonic possession. In verse 4 of Mark 5, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, no one was strong enough to subdue him. So he would have these fits where he would just tear these things loose. I mean, just read between the lines there. Don't focus so much on the chains and the shackles, but imagine that episode where he's breaking free of all of that. And they'd watch. He's having this fit. It's demonically energized and empowered so much so that he's breaking shackles and chains and ropes and all this. He would have these fits. Also, resistance to spiritual things, which would seem to be pretty, you know, uh, uh, obvious. In verse 7, he says to Jesus, what business do we have with each other? One version says, what do I have to do with you, Christ, Son of God? The whole idea here is, what, uh, what business do I have with spiritual things? Now, he's very spiritual. You see, people today talk about being spiritual. They talk about their spirituality. Well, there's two sides to that. There's light and there's dark. And they're both equally spiritual. A lot of people say, well, I'm into my spirituality. Well, so am I. But it looks to me like you've been dipping on the dark side just a little bit there, sister. I mean, you know. So notice he's saying, what business do I have with you? And, and that's just in that particular example. We'll see later on that when Christian counselors and other theologians have tackled this subject, they'll find that there's this great resistance, which would, would seem to figure of spiritual things. Um, excessive uh, sense, uh, senses or clairvoyance, they have this extra... Uh, sensory perception. Now, I'm not talking about you ought to get into ESP, but I'm telling you, you get into that stuff and you're opening yourself up for demonic activity. This was really big back in the 60s and 70s when all the young people were tripping on acid, LSD in particular, and doing astral projection, which, by the way, is a demonic practice. We'll talk about practices, that kind of stuff, in, in, the, in the next lesson. But, but the whole idea of clairvoyance and being in touch with the spirit world, that's real. That's not just some kind of a hallucination. Now, yeah, you do hallucinate when you're on drugs. But I think a lot of those so-called hallucinations, they were actually telling you what they were really seeing. 
th- th- this extra uh, sensory perception that demons have. This is why I believe that sometimes when these, uh, these detectives go to these uh, uh, clairvoyant people and ESP and all that kind of stuff, and they can tell, you, tell about details of a crime that these, these detectives have been trying to figure out, how in the world did that person know that? Well, because the demon was there, and he knew it. And he's simply telling his host what he knows. And it makes it look like that this person that does seances and a seer, they have these special gifts. No, they've got a special demon. We'll look at an example probably next week of the witch at Endor that Saul consults. And she expected to see a familiar spirit and instead she sees the real Samuel. But she shrieks and we'll, we'll talk about it. So that's a, that's a real deal. So he says, Jesus, Son of the Most High, I implore you by God, do not torment me. Notice how he knows exactly who Jesus is. The rest of them didn't know who Jesus was, but he did. He was the Son of God, and he knew that he could torment him if he chose to. The rest of those standing around were still trying to figure out, well, is this guy a prophet, or is this guy really the Son of God, or is he just a holy man? That demon-possessed guy knew exactly who he was. He had the ability to sense and know what the others around didn't. And then they will often show an altered voice. We'll stop with this. In verse 9, and he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now that, that doesn't show up in that biblical text. But do you think if the guy was a high talker, he'd say, oh, my name's Legion and we're many. <laughs> Sounds pretty ferocious, doesn't it? No, in fact, and we'll, we'll see it later, many who have encountered demonic possession will talk about these strange voices that come out of these people's vocal cords, sometimes females speaking in very male-sounding voices, very raspy, guttural, low kinds of voices. Hollywood's capitalized on this. They've been able to replicate it almost exactly. This is actually real. And I think when he said, my name is Legion, we are many, that man probably spoke with a kind of a different voice. And all, now, Scripture doesn't say that, so I can't prove that. But we do know in other examples, it's exactly what happens. These are all characteristics. Now, there are many more. Those are just right out of that story of the man from the Gadarene area. So what we'll do is we'll pick up right there next week, and we'll look at many other characteristics that we need to add to the list that other theologians and Christian counselors have experienced over the years that they've kind of become markers that they watch for when they're possibly dealing with somebody who is possessed. So we'll stop right there. Uh, I didn't know how far we would get today, but at least that's a good stopping spot. Hang on to that outline. We'll pick up there next week, okay?